Hey, Friday Night Lights fans. It's Not Only Football, Friday Night Lights and Beyond is an episode-by-episode discussion of the hit TV series Friday Night Lights, hosted by yours truly, Scott Porter, who played Jason Street on the show, and my two wonderful co-hosts, me, Zach Guilford, a.k.a. Matt Saracen, and me, Mae Whitman, a.k.a. someone who wasn't on the show but really, really loves it a lot. We will also bring on some special guests, answer your questions, and tell you about what's going on in our lives today. It's not only football. Friday Night Lights and Beyond is available now wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose! Yo, next round is about to start. You ready? Yeah, yeah, just shopping for a car in Carvana. For real? Yeah, Carvana makes it super convenient to shop whenever, wherever. For real? That's a ton of car options. Yep, and these are all within my price range. For really real? You can afford that? Yeah, with Carvana. And boom, just like that, I'm getting it delivered in a couple days. For really, really real? You just bought a car. For real, and you just lost my turn. Visit Carvana.com to shop for thousands of vehicles under $20,000. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Dr. Drew Podcast. We appreciate you all being here. Do check out the other stuff we're doing. Uh, you know, the Special Forces show is coming out in January, and so, uh, in fact, this month. And so I'm expecting that many of the cast will be on, uh, if not the Dr. Drew podcast, on the streaming show. I'm going to try to get some over in After Dark. So look for some interesting conversations from that cast. They're all dear friends of mine now. And we'll do sort of a maybe a, a talking dead after walking dead kind of thing where we come back as people are kicked off or leave, whatever die, get in the hospital, whatever it is, uh, we'll talk to them the next day about what their experience was like. And also, we're, you know, we're all doing the usual stuff. Wednesday still with Dr. Kelly at uh, Ask Dr. Drew and the streaming shows. You can get that at Twitch, Twitter, YouTube, Twitter space, anywhere. Anywhere you can stream something, we're streaming there. And that's Wednesday at 3 Pacific time. Then we're usually doing Tuesday and Thursday as well with calls and other sorts of guests. And you guys know After Dark. And of course, Adam and Drew and we'll Appreciate you guys uh, circulating around all those different places and supporting the people that support the various podcasts we do. Speaking of supporting us, Andrew Newberg, you know him uh, from recent appearances. I can't get enough of Andrew. His latest book, The Varieties of Spiritual Experience, 21st Century Research and Perspectives, it is available now. The book invites readers into uh, contemporary psychology and neuroscience laboratories around the world to learn about these profound inner experiences. You can follow Andrew at Andrew Newberg, N-E-W-B-E-R-G dot com. Twitter is at Andrew Newberg. And uh, yeah, he was last year in December and good to see you again. Thanks. Thanks for having me back on the program. So, so I, I know I always leave off with much more to be discussed, but I don't remember specifically what it was on my mind. I feel like at the end of the last conversation, I was like, we're going to leave it there. We're going to keep this going. And now I... Can't remember what I was talking about. I, I think we were going to just hit some real simple questions like the meaning of life. Yeah, the it's, it's, of reality. It was going, yes, the hard, the difficult, the, the easy questions as opposed to the hard questions. That was yes, sort of exactly. the, the direction we were headed. Um, <laughs> is let me ask you first before I sort of dig into my stuff. Anything on your mind? Is there anything new happening? Is there stuff you're excited about? I'm sure there's things happening all the time, and I always have to get updated on these things. Well, you know, we do have uh, more research always coming out about different spiritual experiences and practices. Um, you know, part of what we're I'm ultimately hoping to be able to do is look at all the different religious and spiritual traditions that are out there and see if we can kind of understand the how the brain wraps itself around these different traditions and, and how it affects us as human beings. Because it does come down to me to, to the big question uh, about the nature of reality and, and why some people look you know look at it one way and other people look at it a different way. And that was when I was very young, that, that was kind of the burning question. I was like, if we're all looking at the same world, uh, you know, why, why do we have people of different religions? Why do we have people of different political parties? And uh, as an idealist, I hope that some of this information will ultimately lead to at least some, some greater senses of, of understanding and compassion for people who don't always agree with us. But but we'll have to see if that actually happens. <laughs> well, can you sketch for me what your understanding is of that at this point? Why all these different experiences? Well, I mean, I think you know, I, I, well, part of what we were going to talk about, I think, were some of these philosophical yeah. questions. Yeah. And, and I think in, in a lot of ways, um, this really is a kind of combined neuroscientific as well as philosophical question. Um, and what I mean by that is, is that 
but you know, if we if we kind of look at how we look at the world, how our brain looks at the world, um, we're we're sort of trapped in our brain. Uh, I, I I sometimes call it the, the happy prison of the brain because we are trapped inside of it, and we're looking out at the world now. I call it a happy prison because our brain basically tells us everything's okay. We're, you know, we understand the world, go to work, do, you know, do what you need to do. Um, and it kind of makes us feel okay about the world. But when you actually step back and think about it, um, it, it's really a pretty scary place for us to have to navigate through. I mean, we, we have access to an extraordinarily limited percentage of everything that's going on in the infinite universe. And we try to make some sense out of it. And so you know, how do we do that? Well, we, we turn to people we trust. We, we may turn to our parents. We may turn to uh, people, uh, celebrities. We may turn to politicians or religious leaders um, to try to give us some perspective on things. But ultimately, even when we're listening to somebody, it has to be something that on some fundamental level makes sense to us. And so we use our cognitive processes, our emotional processes, and our experiences to kind of create our beliefs about the world. And when you kind of say, okay, so what do you believe today, you know, as of today, um, when you think about the, the, the millions of bits of DNA that make us who we are, how we, how we grew up with our various respective families and parents and friends and so forth, the, the, the teachers that we had in school, the experiences that we've had in our lives, some traumatic, some wonderful. Um, and you know, here we are at whatever age looking out at the world, um, it isn't a surprise, actually, that we all come to different conclusions. Uh, and so I've always said that if there's seven and a half billion people on the planet, then there's probably seven and a half billion religious perspectives. And uh, and I think that part of what this is all about, part of what our book is about, um, the varieties of spiritual experiences are, are trying to get at the uniqueness that we each have, but then ultimately trying to find the common ground that we may all share. And I think, you know, ultimately... We are all trying to make some sense out of the world. We're all trying to connect to the world in some better way. We're all trying to understand ourselves uh, and, and try to figure out what to do. And so, you know, these are fundamental philosophical questions, but they spill over into the neuroscience because we're using our cognitive processes, our emotional processes and so forth to, to try to figure it all out. So I, so I feel like most of the landscape that you just reviewed was the product of evolutionary biology, right? What helped us survive in this emergent system we call reality, whatever it right. is? So, as you said, we don't perceive all of it because it doesn't serve us in evolutionary adaptation. And in terms of the social, familial, whatever cognitive kinds of uh, development we have, all that theoretically is there to serve evolutionary processes. Um, and right. that's why they're there. Now they can go off course, like you know, every evolutionary. You know, we have all kinds of epiphenomenon and side effects of the evolutionary strategies we use. But it's interesting to me, and I, I'm not sure this is a fully formed thought yet. But what's the nature of reality? Seems to me wholly other than what is this little instrument that we've evolved doing. Right, the, 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 we we try to penetrate reality with physics and linear right. accelerators and things, and and really what we keep getting back is nothing is as it seems. It's not we you don't you perceive very little of what's really going on, right. and and that's okay. I I this is I guess where I want to go philosophically with you is I get very upset when people there then go. They sort of jump to, therefore, there's nothing. Therefore, nothing's meaningful. We can't perceive anything. Or they get nihilistic or, or any version right. of that. Because I, I, I would pre well, not prefer, I think it's much more, again, back to our adaptive advantages, much more useful to say simply there are emergent, there are things that emerge. They're called emergent properties, and they are right. real. They're not real in the sense that they're, we're perceiving everything that's underneath them and everything that's going on with them, but they have their own reality to them. I, I always think about my sort of training. Uh, it's biochemistry, you know, deep biochemistry versus physiology, right? So, you know, the, the what's going on in a cardiac muscle on a sub, you know, a, you know, on an atomic level, you know, forget the muscular structures, just what's going on from a thermodynamic standpoint and how these proteins are getting put together and moving around, it's biochemistry. 
has nothing to do or very little to do with this thing contracting, moving blood around your body, which is the physiology. And the part, if you put a knife in that heart, that physiology, regardless of what's going on in the biochemistry, is going to be profoundly affected. And so emergent reality has meaning, has purpose, has, uh, let's see if I can come up with a word for it, has... uh, I'll just call it, it's important. Emergent reality is important. Whether it's real sort of begs the issue. It's important, right. and we work in it, and we navigate in it, and it, it's not and it's not tricking us. It is a real thing that's emergent, but you you take it from here. Sure. Well, I mean, your, your point is, is right on the mark, uh, and, and, you know, I'll bring it into the realm of, of the brain and the neuroscience. So, uh, you know, this is one of the questions that I challenge uh, my students with and, and think about myself all the time in terms of how we understand the brain itself. Um, we have sodium and potassium atoms that are rushing across a cell membrane to depolarize a neuron that produces electrical signals that you can pick up on an EEG machine uh, that that change, that that then t- tells the nerve cell to ask for more blood flow or more uh, glucose, more sugar to to be energetic. And you can I, see I, that I always tell brain. people just read Kaplan's book on the synapse and how they figured out some of the <laughs> right. stuff. I mean, that's a that's a every of the trillions and quadrillions of synapses is a mini computer but it's exactly. a biological computer it's it's working all kinds of things through with zeros and ones exactly and you got sodium uh, you got you know dopamine and serotonin and all these and so you know but where in all of that is our thought you know where in all that is our consciousness and it speaks to exactly your point about that it's it's a kind of a you know it is an emergent property ultimately um now you know, of course, again, this is where, to me, I get very interested in some of the, the philosophical or even spiritual perspectives on this, because when people have a mystical experience and they perceive unitary consciousness, people start to invert the way we typically think about the material world. You know, we, in, in the sort of traditional scientific perspective of today, um, just what we were talking about, the brain has all these different things going on in it, and from that emerges thoughts and consciousness and so forth. So that's that's one way of looking at it. Um, the other way of looking at it is, is kind of the flip side, which is to say, well, what if somehow consciousness is some primary thing that the universe is made of and matter and, and all the things that we typically see arise from consciousness? Uh, and there's, you know, again, there's, there's certainly approaches in, in Buddhism and Hinduism, for example. Um, you know, even theoretically in the Judeo-Christian perspective, uh, you know, if, if you believe in that, if, you know, God created the universe out of his consciousness, out of God's consciousness. So, um, so, you know, what now what's, but what's interesting about these two different perspectives is that when people have mystical experiences, um, they not only perceive more of that consciousness as being primary, but they also have this experience. And this is what we talk about in our book and some of our research articles that those experiences Feel more real to us, or for, feel more real to the people who are having it, um, than than the everyday reality experience. And it also gets back to your nihilistic point about you know that that doesn't inherently mean that this reality is, is doesn't exist or is an illusion. I, I think that becomes problematic as well. But but it puts it into a different perspective. And, and you know, one of the maybe the, the the ideal analogy that I'm sure all of your listeners will will resonate with is that you know when you have a dream. No matter how real that dream feels, and, and it may feel incredibly real, you may be running from somebody with a knife, you, you may be scared to death, your heart's pounding, blah, blah, blah. You, know, you wake up and you immediately say, okay, wait a minute, that was not as real as the current reality. And that's kind of what happens when people have these very intense spiritual experiences, that they perceive this other, this new perspective of reality as being more real than where you know, science and all the, the material world says. Now, that doesn't mean that they're right and, and that this is wrong or anything like that. But to me, it means that we need to at least account for why that experience is happening and what might that mean, both philosophically as well as scientifically. And I think that it winds up being a very, very important philosophical question that touches on a lot of the points that you're making about, well, you know, how do we how do we even know what we think inside of our head is real? And it gets back to my point about, you know, the happy prison of the brain. Well, to some degree, it has to do with just it, it feels real to us. I mean, I hate to sound like I'm, that's a cop out kind of answer, but but the you know we feel that everyday reality is real because it feels very real. There's 
temporal aspects to it that, you know, if we leave a glass of, of, of water on the table, then we expect it to be there when we get back. Um, you know, when we go to work, we expect the building to be there. And so, you know, we, the world kind of works in certain ways that we interact with and it feels real to us. But people have these experiences and they feel more real, whatever that means. And to me, it's a fascinating question for us to try to address and try to figure out. And when I in, encounter these people, I think we've discussed this before, I, I don't, it's almost the way I feel about people that do deep psychoanalysis. I, I used to be very jealous of them because I, I think, oh, they're having, they're having the, these insights and they get to play around in these areas of their brain and see these things and have these insights. I'm no longer impressed that it does anything for them. <laughs> Let's put it that way. I don't like they, they can talk about this experience much the way I talk about the trip I was on last week. Like it was profound and it was important to me. And and now here we are. <laughs> now I'm back. And, right. and, and I don't see where it substantively changes anybody's unless they have some sort of uh, let's put it this way. Uh, I see a lot more real change from people that have these uh, moments of clarity, which yes. kind of have a spiritual component to it. Like it, they often feels to them like something stepped in from the outside when right. they have clarity of, I need to make this decision. I need to go this direction. I'm going to change my life today. And boom, the record scratches and they change. Yes. I am deeply impressed by those sorts of experiences. Right. But when I talk to people that go down and take ayahuasca and who have meditative experiences, yes, it's it's good for them. It's not bad for right. them. It's good for them. Mm -hmm. And what's for dinner? Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I get a yeah, little well, more – I'm a little more pragmatic like our, our friend uh, – crap, what's the name of the psychologist from Harvard that invented all this? Uh, stream of Consciousness. Your, your, your book's an homage to him. Uh, Chuck Sumahai or no 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 uh, 1890 <laughs> uh, 1860 <laughs> And we did ask them about the experiences, but we do ask how it changes them. And, and as you mentioned, um, you know, when people do have an experience that is transformational and pr provides a new sense of clarity and understanding and realness to them, where they understand themselves and the world in a different way, it does seem to carry over into uh, many aspects of their life, it, it, you know, often in the spiritual realm of their lives, but most people describe that they're their, their mental health is better. Their relationships are better. Um, now, again, you know, we could discuss how 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 to measure that and, and how accurate. Right? Do you is, get do you get anybody else's input on that, right. <laughs> or just the page self reporting? <laughs> exactly. Right. Exactly. Well, it, it is self report, um, obviously, but which is but we also shouldn't you know belittle self report. I, I, I wouldn't people... belittle self reporting, but man, <laughs> do people distort their sense of themselves and reality? It's just, it's uncanny how deep that is. So of I always course. worry about self-reporting. I, I was just listening to a comedian who said that people who call themselves people person, a people person, should should make sure that they confirm that with the other people around. A hundred percent. Exactly right. That's exactly the point. Well, well, and actually, I mean, it, it is an interesting point because you know these experiences themselves are so subjective, and we've had conversations within our our own research lab about how do we measure this. You know, and obviously, you need the subjective personal experience because you want to know what a person feels. But how does one measure whether somebody is enlightened? Um, and how do we make that determination? Is it based on their actions? Um, you know, not, not everyone who's enlightened has to become a Mother Teresa or a Dalai Lama. Um, and uh, in fact, uh, you know, what the historically enlightenment means is that you could be anything. You could be, yeah. you know, a cab driver or, a, you know, work sure. at, the, uh, at the laundromat and if you're enlightened, it doesn't matter. You 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 have a different perspective on things. So, but, but certainly, think, humans have a, a desire for some sort of spiritual something. Uh, I, again, yes. I I, I want to talk about the existentialists at some point today because they're the ones right. I think that they're at least from the Western continental point of view tried to get at some of this stuff using right. more traditional Western kinds of things. 
And it's interesting, they end up sort of in a place where they're going, well, time is something with a horizon and ecstasy about something that is something about something. <laughs> it's like they can't, they can't, they find it impossible ultimately put it to words, or at least the words right. they use start making no sense at a certain point. It's something that's well, something about a something. <laughs> well, before we get to the Nas, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I, I think that, that part of what we also do see, uh, you know, um, you said, I, I think, something very important, which is I think we do all have a kind of spiritual uh, aspect to ourselves. And that, yeah. doesn't, that does not imply supernatural, uh, right. although for some it does. I, I'm not sure. But, that we, um, has anybody ever tried just to define that, like really rigorously define what that is that people need in quotes? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, yes and no. Uh, certainly people have, um, you know, whether it is completely agreed upon or not, I, I don't think it is a uh, I, I wrote a book about 10 years ago called The Principles of Neurotheology about this whole field. Yes. And the whole first chapter is about definitions. And, um, you know, uh, I would actually challenge your listeners to go home and, and write down spirituality and religiousness and, and and write down how they define what those terms are. What do you um, think it is? And what, what, do you suspe- what do you suspect it is? Spirituality well, per se. I, yeah, my, my own personal perspective, based on all the people that we've talked to, is that I, do, I think it has something to do with um, with grounding ourselves, with connecting ourselves to something greater. Right. And, that, that's what um, I would say, too. So, yeah. Something that is it, – it's it, that's not quite getting it fully, but it's something um, – I don't know, because I, 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 if you use too many words, you're going to get move away from it. But it's something right. I would say it's something important that yes. is outside of self, that is far bigger than self, but that we have a need of some sort to connect to it. Right, right? and you know what, what's interesting is, um, you know, I, I, I think that is fun. To, I mean, if, again, you know, you mentioned evolutionary theory at, at, from the outset, so uh, you know, to start with, we're social animals. I mean, yeah. we do better. When we're in a group, then and we're safer when we're in a group than when we're not. And as as are many animals, not all, but you know, many of them, certainly the higher animals, mammals, and so forth, are almost always in some kind of group, whether it's the nuclear family or a close, you know, set of uh, individuals. And and that's important. And of course, what also is interesting, and, and this is another you asked about some of the, the current work that I'm doing on. Um, way back when, when I started to think about these questions, we talked a lot about rituals. And how rituals are part of that process of grounding us and connecting us with other people, uh, with God, with the universe, whatever it is that the ritual connects us with. But rituals ultimately come from, if, if, if we go with the evolutionary perspective, the rituals that human beings have come from the rituals that animals have. And animal rituals are basically mating rituals. Because mm. what does a mating ritual do? It brings you together. It connects you. It, it, it unifies you with something else. Um, in this case, another animal that's like you. And uh, that that is, again, absolutely essential for sexual reproduction. And so, you know, it isn't a surprise, I think, uh, or it shouldn't be a surprise that it's sexuality and sexual experiences are often referred to in spiritual terms and ecstasy and so forth. And those rituals that are part of the mating process uh, and all the elements that go into those rituals, the sights, sounds, uh, movements, and so forth that drive the brain sexually ultimately drive the the spiritual aspects of who we are, I think, in terms of trying to get that sense of connection. And so, and then sometimes that sense of connection is with just another person. And people often feel that being with their spouse is, is a kind of spiritual thing, but, um, but then connecting to the group of, of people, the society, uh, or, or the whole world, uh, and uh, and it goes from there. So I, I think that sense of uh, you know another term that gets used is self transcendence. You know, getting yeah. beyond the self and, right. and advancing, and that's where spiritual uh, ideas and beliefs you know certainly take us. And and I do think that there's that pragmatic aspect to it of of creating that sense of connection, which ultimately um, has a lot of value for us. Uh, from an evolutionary perspective, yeah. as well as from a psychological perspective, I, I would argue that we you might be zeroing in on something here that is above connection, more more profound. I, I would call merger, like a mm-hmm. desire yes. to merge with another person, another social group, another whatever above ourselves, you know, God, whatever. And I I've never really had that thought before, and I think there's something kind of really interesting in that because merging, when I think psychologically and psychoanalytically, this kind of a, again, as you said, it's part of the reproductive drive, but it almost has its own autonomous motivational system to it. 
not, yes. not, not uh, connecting, sure, because we like connecting and we like love. We like being with other people. It helps us survive. But but merger has a more a deeper, more profound kind of ineffable, animalistic, whatever yeah. kind of quality to it. That's very yes. interesting. Yeah, and, and and you know, first of all, you know, when we look at the brain of people who are deep in meditation or prayer, um, changes in the brain, particularly in our parietal lobe, which help us with our sense of self, that area starts to quiet down as we experience that sense of connection or merger, as you're saying. I think that's a great term um, as well. And and so it is. It's a very powerful part of that experience. It's a very fundamental part of that experience. And um, and, and I think that. Uh, you know, it, it, it is something that um, really lies, you know, at, at the real core of, of who we are as human beings. And um, I, I think, you know, it, it has a lot of psychological value. One of the things that's kind of an interesting piece to it is that when we think about ourselves psychologically and you go back to like Freud and the ego self, you know, maintaining your ego self is so important. I mean, that is, Again, it's kind of the evolutionary piece of we got to maintain ourselves. Yeah, um, we got to survive. Well, no, and but let me let me into- add to that that the the way our systems are set up, our our bodily integrity and our self integrity in terms of survival is hooked together. We we don't see them as right. different on a deep level. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And and so we right. I mean, we 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 get anxious when we're in danger because that's yeah. how our bodies are supposed to work. Our yeah. brains are supposed to work. Yeah. But when you get into the merger, you lose the sense of self. Yeah. Which on one hand would be a very scary thing to do, yeah. But on the other hand, winds up, you know, because you create that larger connection, um, really actually becomes more protective and more valuable to you as 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 an individual. And so, yeah, that 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 sense of connectedness or merging um, really is a very very powerful. Well, and it's it's part of, of it's part of mental health too. To I mean, I oh yeah, I haven't thought about this in a long time, but I used to think a bit about it. This, this ability to flexibly move in and out of merger. There's another word we used to use. What the hell was it? Can't think of it. It is sort of, you know, where you lose yourself in somebody else. It's just, that, that's a, mm-hmm. that is, you know, on a, some level what's happening when people are engaged in intercourse. That's the, 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 that, you, Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. it, but that can be, but some people don't fully engage in the merger. They're, they're not healthy enough to be able to fully give into it. And they, right. you know, have all kinds of epiphenomenon feelings whatnot associated with it, not going in. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses nationwide. In fact, worldwide, industry-leading tools ready to ignite your growth. Shopify gives you complete control of your business and your brand without having to learn any new skills in design or code. You just It's simple. Simple. It's incredible about Shopify. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify is there to empower you with the confidence and control to revolutionize your business and take your business to that next level. Shopify, you've heard of it. You need to use it. And Shopify covers every sales channel from in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash drew. That's all in lowercase. Again, go to shopify.com slash DRW to take your business to the next level today. One more time, that is shopify.com slash Drew. So let, me, let me just... Well, and, and, and one other thing I want to say about this point of merger, which is that um, in, ter- you know, in terms of the larger world and, and looking at you know, all of the divisiveness and so forth that we see around us these days, um, the issue with that sense of, of merging uh, I think to, to me, one of the real critical pieces to that is what are you merging with and how are you looking at that? So what I mean by that is that um, if you feel that you're, you know, maybe you have a small group of people who all have share a certain belief. Um, if with, you know, so you might feel very connected to that group. But now if you also feel that you're connected to the rest of humanity, then you're you're open to other people and you, you care about other people, you do good things, blah, blah, blah. Um, on the other hand, uh, if you are just purely connected to your group and to the exclusion of things that are outside of that group, in this case, people, then those other people wind up being categorized in a very negative way because they're, they don't believe the way you believe. They don't look at things the way you look at them. And so, you know, your brain sort of has these two fundamental options. One is, am I right? Is my group right? Or are those people right? Well, if those people are right, then I'm, I got it wrong. And that's a very scary position to be in for our brain. So it's much easier to feel like, no, we've got, you know, we know what's right. I know what's right. My group is right. And when when that starts to happen, 
then you know, well, so why are they telling me something else? Well, maybe they're they're not only are they wrong, maybe they're evil, maybe they're you know immoral, maybe they're bad people. Uh, maybe I should kill those people. You know, uh, and they're almost not even real. You know, they almost become non-real people. Mm. And well, so, the, you know, when that's the robber cave. Yeah, there's lots yeah. of social psychology on that, that. That that's how we're able, to, our brains are able to do that. We make them non-human. Exactly, exactly. And I think this is part of how that. So, you know, my 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 late uh, mentor and I used to talk about the rituals that sort of drive us to those kinds of feelings of merging um, as a morally neutral technology, and so. They can; those rituals can be used by the Nazis to to you know go to fight against you know every group out there, uh, or it can be used to great good. You know that we're all in. You know we're all trying to save our world together, uh, and um, and and that's to me where the real challenges are. And trying to understand, you know what what things drive our brain in one way versus another, and and maybe hope to be able to redirect people who who really do wind up with a very sort of negative. Uh, external view of other people and, and the out, out the outer world into something that would be potentially more positive. But uh, obviously that that's much easier said than done. <laughs> well, and, and I think there's so much pertinent to the present moment. I was in Europe last week and um, this notion of national and cultural identity is red hot right now. You know, yes. in a lot of different ways. Uh, sort of the English or the British sort of brought it into focus by by literally taking the position that our identity, again, this is another loaded word we can talk about, our, right. our, our Britishness is more important to us than the economic advantages we get by being a part of this union, where our Britishness right. gets sort of lost in this union. And then on the heels of that, this is what kind of surprised me and got me thinking about this, and the um, the Scottish are now talking about breaking off from Britain, from England, right. because their identity is more important, getting lost a little bit in the United Kingdom, and so right. it's it's just it, it it goes back to and 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 I was thinking to myself at the time, I was like, no, these are these are real things and valuable things, and we've gone through a long period of time where we have brushed this all aside because of the excesses and where it went in World War II and all these other things. Right. You know, the the excesses of it is how we get into trouble, but the actuality of it is probably very healthy and also unavoidable given all right. these constructs we're talking about, about self and identity and these yes. things that we want to connect to. Yeah. Well, absolutely. And, and, you know, going back to our point that we were both talking about with regard to just interpersonal relationships and, and having a spouse and so forth. Uh, you know, of course you lose some of your identity, you know, I mean, maybe, you, you know, if you happen to really like, you know, playing tennis or something like that, then maybe you'll still play tennis, but, but there's other things where, well, now you got to go to, to, to watch a play that maybe you wouldn't have normally. Well, you're, you're getting into something that, uh, that uh, there's a whole field of psychology dedicated to what's called the vampire problem. Mm -hmm. uh, have you ever heard of this? It's, it's Go ahead. So you're saying when you get married, you do have to have a leap of faith because you literally are you're switching into the married person. You're becoming right. something different. And the way they sort of uh, frame that problem, is, it's called the vampire problem, which is you meet a vampire and the vampire says – you know, uh, yeah, I used to think being a vampire was terrible, but I, I love it. It's great. I get to I live forever. I People, I don't have so much contact with people anymore, and I, I can't get up during the day. But but overall, it's it's great. I love it. And, you know, what is that process of going from mortal to vampire? How do we how do we navigate that? How do we make that decision? What happens when we make these leaps? And it's it is a lot of things in life where we go – Becoming a physician, becoming a re neuroscience researcher. These are you're now a vampire essentially, and and you leave right. some things behind when you do that, and hopefully you get some good things out of it. But it's it's a it's a rather profound thing that we don't think that much about. Yeah, well, and and also I, I think it gets back to one of the things that we were talking about a few moments ago too about um, you know that you mentioned a, a very important point that sense of clarity, um, and when we looked at all of these um, spiritual experiences. The sense of clarity is is one of the one of the keys to it, um, and so you know the, the, this analogy, the, the vampire analogy, or the you know just when you connect with another person, yeah, um, and you start to lose your what what is what is good and bad? Well, you know there isn't an inherently one way or another which is better or worse, but it depends on where your own sense of clarity comes in. If you say, oh wait a minute, you know being in my marriage is so much more valuable to me then, you know, being able to do all of the individual things that I used to do when I was single, then, 
it becomes a good thing, you know, yeah. and you have that sense of clarity. You see it in that new context. And of course, then sometimes when relationships start to go bad, people say, well, wait a minute, I, you know, now I'm losing myself. Yeah. You know, if, if the relationship is good, losing yourself is fine. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. um, you know, so, so th there's always a balance, but, but it gets back to those, those, those moments where you have that new way of thinking about the world that does change the way your brain operates and changes the way you think. And it modulates your responses in terms of yourself. I mean, now you care more about another person or you care about your children or whatever it is. Um, and, and, and less so about you. Well, and, and the, literally uh, the, in some sense, the old you in some fashion is no longer exists. And, right. and, and your body fights that. Your body doesn't want to do that. Even if the vampire is a lot better, you still don't want to become a vampire. <laughs> well, and, and that's an interesting, you know, we talk about this a lot, that this is that sense of that notion of self-transcendence. So um, when we talk about uh, how the brain operates, uh, it's constantly changing. You know, we, we are all, we are, we are different than the way we were when we started this program. Um, and we're different than the way we were 15 years ago, 20 years ago, and, you know, 50 years ago, whatever. Um, and so, uh, you know, on one hand, our brain has to be able to grow and adapt and to change as we grow, adapt and change. And as the world changes around us, that's, that's what it's all about and how it, how it works. Um, but, but those changes, as you said, you know, on one hand, especially when you become aware of them could take us in directions that could be scary, could take right. us in directions where we feel like we don't fully, you know, understand the world properly. And of course, if we don't understand the world properly, that makes us anxious because that means our survival, you know, it ultimately comes back to our survival. Right. But if we feel that those changes lead to a better place of being, um, then, then our, our body and our brain start to feel very comfortable with that. And we move into those new ways of thinking. And, and, and again, it has to do with how we see that reality, which gets back to the fundamental question we started the show on. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to go back to ritual really quick. Um, sure. I, I was thinking about it as you were talking that, that fundamentally, you, you said rituals about connection, but really what ritual is, is about information transfer, right? Uh, so in those mating rituals, information about fertility and vitality and health and all that is really what's being in dominance and whatever. That's the information that's being transmitted, presumably, or your feathers are more beautiful or whatever it is. That's correct. There's all this information. Right. And, and I have always felt that one of the functions of adaptive functions evolutionarily for ritual for humans is transmitting stable information about terribly traumatic experiences. So, right. I mean, if let's for instance, let's say Passover happened, this 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 uh, you know the the Pharaoh kills all the babies or tries to do it, and they escape narrowly by blood of lamb and all this traumatic stuff. This horrible night, and they have to leave and blah blah blah. And if if humans tried to transmit that story generation to generation, after about three hundred years, it would be an angel came down and you know a monster was right. after it. It would be distorted in a myth and all. Who God knows what it would be. But when you make it a ritual where you do the exact same thing every year, transmit the specific information, and we never change that ritual. The ritual is an offloading of memory to a behavior that keeps the memory unchanged, maybe simplified, but unchanged over 3,000 years now, which is crazy, right? It's so interesting to me. If it, if it were verbally transmitted, it just wouldn't even exist. It just wouldn't, right. it wouldn't go no, on. I mean Absolutely. I mean, rituals are so powerful and so important and, and, and you're right on the mark. I mean, you know, they, 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 they engender a feeling of connectivity, of connection, of merging, as you mentioned, but it's merging with what, and that's where the information piece comes in. And so uh, you're absolutely right as well. You know, that uh, on the mating perspective, it is, is one, is this the same species as me? Yeah. And then two, is it a worthy mate? And, yeah. you know, all, all those kinds of things. But then, as you said, you know, as the human brain evolved and we started to not just transmit, you know, sort of basic physiological information about ourselves, but this, the ideas, the concepts about the world, the stories about the world. Well, well the, mean, the cultural information really is what And the cultural information, is, yeah. right. Who, who am I and yeah. who am I connected to? Um, yeah. It's the, those rituals. You know, what's, what's beautiful about those rituals and to use the Passover one that you're just talking about, you know, 
it, it binds you in the moment. You know, you, you're following this this very specific rhythmic ritual of the different things that need to be done. Pulls a community together, binds, merges a community together regularly. It, can, yeah. it combine, Right. And then it combines you to your family and yeah. then it combines you to your community. And then it combines you across time. So now the people who are part of the Passover Seder, the people who are part of, of the Christmas ritual, you're connected to that group of individuals, not just today, but you know, eternally, so to speak, you know, yeah, it goes yeah. back thousands of years. And, and as you said, I mean, part of what's so valuable about ritual is that it codifies that information. And it isn't just the story itself, but the rituals, all the physical stuff that's yeah. part of it, the things you eat, the sing, the songs you sing, the smells, the, you know, all of that all, all becomes part. It, 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 you feel it in your body, in your brain, in your body. And so they, they have a very, very powerful effect. That, that leads to that sense of connection and, uh, and, and, and tells you what you're connected to. And, uh, and it's all part of that whole process. And so this is a good point to sort of pull back and talk about philosophy, which we promised we would do. <laughs> so I, I, let me get, what is your philosophy as it pertains to these things? What, what, do you have a favorite philosopher? Do you have your own synthesis? Uh, it, how, do you, how do you manage all that? Well, I, I certainly have some favorite. I've, I've always, uh, you know, I've been a fan of, um, of some of the the, the well known ones. Obviously, uh, I, I was always a bit of a fan of Descartes and, and the way he questioned things. I got a, I, I think he, he made some mistakes ultimately, but uh, I, I loved his approach. Um, uh, Baruch Spinoza. I don't know how many people know that name, but uh, you know, he certainly had this kind of conception about the universe and God, and and kind of thinking about it a little bit more scientifically and the order and the uh, of nature and so forth. Have you so, read? Uh, uh, have you read? Uh, shit, now I'm like my name retrieval. Uh, neuroscientist at USC. Help me, Gary. Uh, wife's also a neurologist. He's a neurologist. Uh, oh, Damasio. Damasio's book on Spinoza. Right. Yes, I did. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Quite good. Quite good. Yes, absolutely. Um, so, but but with that being said, um, you know, part of how I kind of got to where I am in my own thought processes and this whole field of studying spirituality and the brain, neurotheology, and so forth. Um, part of what happened within me as I started to look at this question about the nature of reality, um, I, my initial thought was, well, you know, let's, let's start with the brain. You know, that's, that is how we look at the world. And so I did a lot of neuroscience, you know, reading and, and learning and training and so forth and going into medical school and so forth. Um, However, I began to realize that there were certain issues and limitations in terms of what it could say about the nature of consciousness and, and, and how we sort of escape this, this prison of our brain. And so I got into looking at philosophy and theology. Uh, and, and so in my, to me, uh, the research that I do looking at these spiritual experiences, both from a physiological perspective, as well as from a practical one, uh, you know, or a, a, a subjective one, I should say. Uh, what people actually feel and think. Um, that to me, it, it's all part of one larger uh, approach. And I, I don't know how much science should be weighted, how much philosophy and spirituality should be weighted at this point. Uh, I don't know if it's 50-50 or 90-10, <laughs> um, but but I, I do feel, and, and again, I, I'm not certain, but um, I do feel that that there's some kind of combined approach is the way that we are going to be most likely to find an answer to those questions, that if we just go down a scientific perspective, we lose certain things about the nature of ourselves and the nature of the world. If we just go down a spiritual path or a religious path, uh, you know, we learn some great things, but we, you know, we miss a lot about the physical world. Uh, and so trying to find some way of bringing them together and helping us to kind of look at ourselves and look at the world through that combined lens, uh, I think is, is ultimately the way to do it. And and that's what I keep working on, and I'm still working on trying to develop those, uh, the, you know, how we can explore those questions as well as uh, ways we, we can do that. We can try to find yeah. answers both within myself as, as well as externally through the study of science. No, I think it's inevitable that, that if you're going down particularly neuroscientific pathways, you end up you end up in a, spirit, in a, in a philosophical position. You know, because you, right. you start getting some difficult questions, like you know, why should I care? What what what? If the death and dying comes into it quickly, and you know, and, and what what you know, what are we doing here? And what what does it matter? All this stuff starts coming very very quickly. Right. Um, and I agree that if you go strictly down a spiritual or theological path, it becomes untethered. 
And as we pointed out last time, if you keep going down a scientific path, you're no better than phrenology because you're just making correlations with what's going on here. You're not you're not getting at the deep. You really can't get at the deeper questions. You can sort of right. get around them and sort of talk about <laughs> them, but you can't really answer. And maybe maybe they are unanswerable. Let me let me ask this. You mentioned theology and philosophy. Do you make a distinction between those two? Well, I think theology is a little bit more specific about religious uh, beliefs, and so uh, you know specific ideas about. Uh, a god or some kind of higher power that is part of the the world and part of the universe, and uh, you know, I, I can't say that there is or isn't, but um, it, it does lead you to at least address questions in ways that are a little bit different. You know, you talk about, let's say, for example, the question of free will. Um, if you look at free will from a neuroscientific perspective, that raises certain. You know, you, you see, well, there are areas of our brain that are operating before we make conscious decisions, and and you know, there's information about that. Uh, if there's, if it's philosophical, you could get into, well, how, how do we begin to make decisions about things philosophically? And, and of course, if there's a religious perspective, then, uh, arguably God would give you, uh, the ability to have free will and, and, uh, and be, and then evaluate how you do with that free will. So, so I think, you know, taking a question like free will, it's great to bring in all those different perspectives because they all, uh, have a, a slightly unique angle on that question. But, um, and, and sometimes they're, they're, uh, oppositional to each other. But uh, again, I think trying to use those different approaches winds up being very helpful. So to me, the theological tends to be a little bit more about God and, and something a little bit more supernatural, um, which you know I, I don't necessarily subscribe to, but I, I certainly can't exclude at the moment. And, uh, and I think philosophy is more about, you know, kind of how we analytically look at the world and try to think through with rational thought and uh, and, and through our experiences and so forth. But uh, I think in Descartes' era, uh, you know, part of the question is about our emotional processes too. Um, so it's not just rationality, but our emotions, what feels right and so forth. Um, yeah. And, the, then, the, and then the, you get back. So Descartes' era fundamentally is that he, he left out sort of the fact the, that we are an embedded, brain is embedded in a body. And, the, exactly. and that the, the autonomic system and the various sensory systems that are distributed through the body are the source of feelings. They're the source of them, and uh, they're right. in, and they're feeding into the brain, which is changing the brain all the time. Now, you brought up this issue of the um, the elect electrochemical changes that happen prior to conscious decision making. Yeah, that, that still to me leaves room for free will. I mean, it, it's absolutely. It, it's just not yeah. a conscious element in free will. It's just something goes on that leads to a certain decision, and that something is the totality of free will. Right. Right. Well, I agree. I, and that, that's always sort of been my feeling on it. Um, but uh, but I certainly know, you know, friends and colleagues who say, nope, you know, that you, uh, it, it depends on it gets back to your point about definitions earlier. We were talking about definition of spirituality, you know, where what is the definition of free will? Does it have to be a consciously made decision right. or can there be a combination of subconscious and conscious uh, thoughts and which which I, I do agree I, I I tend to subscribe to that Just a little bit it's, more because it's everything everything works that way it's all of who we yeah. are right I mean yeah. it, it, which is different than somebody you know manipulating us although again we are highly manipulatable yep. And, yep. <laughs> uh, and and the social media world uh, has certainly uh, shown that on so many different levels so uh, you know it, 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 it does become quite a challenge to think about where our free will may lie and and what that means and and it even gets back to your point about the merger piece, which is that when people feel that they merge with some, you know, universal consciousness, um, then free will actually exists more in that kind of setting as opposed to in our individual ego uh, consciousness setting. So interesting. Uh, that's interesting. You know, fast. It, it, it's just it goes on and on, and and they're wonderful questions that that challenge us and uh, and hopefully help us understand who we are. Yeah. Uh, I, I lost a thought I was having about uh, oh, sorry. oh I was gonna say that the free will question I, I I mean people that argue that there is no free will will often go down to the determinism of physics which is not very deterministic by the way everybody um, right. but but it, it it's all a probability equation and as you move up again we're back to this concept of emergent properties yep. yeah the, it becomes more determined I, I'd say but anyway, um, well, and, and I think the challenge with emergence where, you know, I certainly have a lot of respect for that field. Um, I, I think the real problem with the study of emergence is, is how is, is you kind of 
you can look at the emergent property and try to figure out where it came from, but it's hard to start with a particular you know level and figure out what will emerge from that yeah. and, and how it will do that. And, and, and when, so, when is it emergent? When is it the emergent thing? When is it, right. yeah. when is right. it it's, so, it's I mean, continuum? Right. I mean, most people would tell you that the sodium and the potassium atoms that are in your brain are not consciousness. Although, again, if you're a Buddhist or Hindu, you would say, yes, they are. Um, but, uh, it, you know, if you come from a scientific perspective and say that they're not conscious in and of themselves, so why, when you have millions and millions of them rushing across the cell membrane, do you ultimately, you know, does, at what point does it? Does a consciousness emerge from that and why uh, or how? And uh, it's, those are the big questions. Yeah. And so phrases like in and of itself, of and for itself, now we're getting into philosophy again. Now you get back and, into philosophy, and, right? And, exactly. And, and do you, do you, have you read The Existentialists? Because I feel like they were the ones that really tried to focus on the experience, right? And we're, we're really talking about experiences here. Uh, well, yes, and I, you know, I think we are talking a lot about experience. Um, you know, it gets uh, to a point that uh, I think we touched on briefly uh, a little bit earlier, which is that you know, it's our experiences of the world that tell us what is real. You know, and like the sort of silly example I always use. You know, if I'm if I'm up giving a, a presentation to a group of people and I say my little green assistant who's standing on my shoulder. You know, I, well, no one sees that. It doesn't make any sense. And so people say, well, that's ridiculous. Um, but why, you know, why is that concept ridiculous? Whereas if I say um, the atoms that are inside of my head, which are 99.9% space, uh, are the ones that are coming up with what I'm saying and speaking and uh, making the airwaves vibrate so you can yeah. hear. And so, so, you know, why do we accept certain things as being real and other things as not? And it gets back to this piece of experience but I think it does. I think it then kind of leads you down this path of, of well, in, in philosophy, this path of phenomenology. You know, sort of the experience of things right. that help you to define that those things and define right. the world. Right. But then it kind of gets back to so then what actually is the world? You know, again. Well, it, but and, it, and it's we like Heidegger, Heidegger starts with the example of a hammer on the wall. Right. There's, he, the hammer on the wall is a bunch of atoms and then some inorganic material and it's on the wall but it's and it has no existence as such except it's ready to hand in other words the human has some potential meaning in that hammer and as soon as you pick up the hammer now it's president hand now now it has something deeply meaningful it can do lots of things and those things it can do are endowed by us and our experiences right, right? And so the hammer has a wood handle, and it still has the inorganic. But it has a claw you can hit somebody with, and it has a head that you can build things with. And it just, it just, the experience is kind of built. That's where he starts with just stuff like that. And he asks right. questions like, you know, are are my glasses, which I never notice, far from me or near to me? <laughs> you know, are they far <laughs> because I never notice them, or are they near because they're sitting on my face? Again, so right. there's aspects of experience. That they go through, you know, he goes through incredible, impenetrable, uh, you know, detail. Yeah, yeah, detail to try to figure out. Right, and, and of course, in phenomenology, it's about all the different ways that we experience that hammer. That ultimately, you know, not just that we experience the hammer, but all the ways that hammer can be experienced. Yeah, kind of makes it what it is. But then, if you say, okay, well, then you know, let's get back to the discussion of experience, and then that has to do with. Um, you know, with the nature of our mind and our yeah. consciousness, yeah. and uh, and what actually an experience is. Right. That's and, what you. And, that's where you and I go. We go back to the neuroscience to find out what's right. actually going on here. What is right. going on? Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, when we when you know, I, and then it gets back to well, why do we experience something as real? And then what do you do with the experience of the mystical, uh, the spiritual, where somebody says, "Ah, when I felt God." That was the most real thing I ever felt. Yeah. That's the way reality is. Interesting. And again, it doesn't prove that that's the real reality, but we better take a good look at it because, you know, it, it still comes down to all of our experiences. And, and just to continue my cartoon sketch of Heidegger, he, he sort of asked the questions, you know, why is something something? Why, why right. is there anything that's anything? And, and ultimately, he sort of situates it all in time. Right, but as biological agents, time has something the physics call the arrow. The physicists call the arrow of time. We we experience time as this linear thing with a present, past, and future. But Heidegger had the wisdom to say, no, there's something richer than that. 
it's sort of a temporality that that is sort of something that's again something. <laughs> this temp- he right. calls it he called it temporality, which was something deeper than temporality. That there's something, and that's where this is all happening. All this meaning making and this thing we're doing, and, right. and so you, you, we can go and go and go. I, ultimately, you know, you and I, when we go to turn to philosophy, is because we're wondering why we should why it should matter. Is really kind of what we're wondering, right? You and I, when we when we get to the right. yeah, it's like, eh, why do we care? Why should we care? Is there a philosophical component to this? When I stand back, and philosophy does offer answers, oftentimes yes. to these things. Well, and, and I think you know we're we're ultimately, uh, and you mentioned this, I think, uh, much earlier on about you know the nihilists and you know everything's nothing, but yeah. uh, but I think ultimately it comes down to you know we 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 want to make we want to. Th- hope that at least the things that we believe are non-arbitrary, that if we believe in, you know, if we're a Democrat, if we're a Republican, if we're an American or a British, if we're, you know, whoever we are, um, we like to think that it is more than just a purely relative thing that has no basis in anything. And so uh, philosophy and science both, again, try to kind of help you make that merger, help you make that grounding to something that hopefully, you know, gives a context to how we think about the world and we can say, Oh, okay, well that makes sense. You know, the world is this way, you know, our, uh, it is better for us to try to be compassionate and supportive of yes. other people as yes. opposed to kill other people. Well, that's, um, that, that is the point I was going to make is that the neuroscience as you follow it and the philosophy, as you follow the paths kind of end up in similar places. I, I, yeah. you know, that meaning making is important. Other people are important. Uh, right. You know, family is important. That these are that's not only important but healthy. And here's how our brain reacts to it. And right. uh, and and sometimes when you have trouble finding those things, Voltaire gave us some answers. He just said, "You just focus on taking care of your garden. Just stay, keep it simple. You know, keep it right." right. The, the end of Candide was "Il faut il faut cultiver notre jardin," which is it just just we must cultivate our garden. And yeah. and that and even Gilgamesh, you know, the oldest myth of, of uh, he, that humans know, that right. was kind of what he said too. You got to go back and be a good king. Just go back and serve your people. And so yeah. it, it, I think I, I I don't know if you agree with me, but I think those are very profound uh, insights, and that neuroscience supports it. And if yes. you if you get nothing else out of this conversation, uh, you know, other people are important. Focus on that. Take care of yourself right. and other people. Meaning, meaning making and most meaning making is about service. And take care of your own garden. How about right. that for a well, stopping place? We can roll to a stop there. <laughs> I, I think that's a great stop. And I will add this though that uh, you know I, I wrote a book on how enlightenment changes your brain, and and it gets back to a point that we made earlier too, which is that. If you are an enlightened individual, when you have that sense of clarity that you talked about earlier too, um, that's exactly what people come to. And it doesn't matter whether you are the head of you know the the world or if you're you know got a little garden in your backyard. Um, it's it's being kind of the best that you can be as who you are, yeah. and that that you've kind of gone through that whole process of exploring the whole outer world to kind of get back to the fact that when you take care of your own inner world and you rest with that connection with the rest of the world, then that winds up being kind of the healthiest way and, and the best way to be. And, uh, but it so often it does get lost and, and it is a challenge for people to and, find. And many, many philosophers come to the same place by different means and say it in different ways. Yes. Marcus Aurelius said something like that. Voltaire mm-hmm. said something like that. Spinoza said something like that. Uh, it, so it 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 is Could a rather self be true. <laughs> yeah, it is a rather profound thing. All right, Shakespeare said something about it. So all right, well, listen. As always, it's a profound pleasure to talk to you. Get the book, "The Varieties of Spiritual Experience: Twenty First Century Research and Perspectives." Also, tell us again the other book, uh, Neurotheology: uh, uh, How Enlight How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain. Neurotheology, the first one. Oh, and on uh, uh, the principles of neurotheology. Principles of neurotheology. Uh, also, follow Andrew at andrewnewberg.com, at Andrew Newberg on Twitter, and uh, say hi to our friend Daniel Amen if you see him before I do, and I will. Ho- hopefully we'll talk together soon. That sounds great. Thank you so much. Take care. Take care. And we'll see you all next time. 
For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. All month long on Pluto TV, stream the biggest Tyler Perry movies free. Watch your favorites like Medea's Witness Protection and Medea's Big Happy Family. Join Tyler Perry as he goes on a couples retreat with Sharon Leal in Why Did I Get Married? Or Idris Elba and Gabrielle Union in the Tyler Perry directed film Daddy's Little Girls. Plus, Pluto TV has hundreds of channels with thousands more movies and TV shows available on live and on demand. Download the free Pluto TV app on all your favorite devices and start streaming now. Pluto TV. Drop in, watch free.